Well, good morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you now with the scriptures having been read again, and we, um, we pray, please, that you would help us engage well with all that you have given us. Help us, please, um, think your thoughts. Um, help us be transformed and changed to know you, to know you the true and living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you think of God? How do you think about God? When you think of God, what's the conception in your mind? What goes on? Um, Do you think of God as sort of an old man in the sky uh, wagging his finger at those who have done something wrong? The uh, eternal policeman who is always catching people out? How do you think about God? What is the way you understand him as you think about him? Do you think of him as a force, a kind of a supernatural force? Do you think of him like a Greek god? We've had lots of Marvel movies. Do you think of him like just a glowing, very powerful, big person? How do you think of God? Do you think of him as a her? How do you think of God? What's the conception that you come up with? Do you think of him as uh, soft and nice and gentle and kind? How do you think of God? You know, it matters a great deal about how you think of God, what you have in your mind as you think of this God and respond to this God and relate to this God or ignore this God. It matters a great deal. It's possible to get God wrong. It's possible to misunderstand God in your mind. The human heart, it's been said, is an idol factory. It is forever making new fashions, new shapes of God and what he's like. We're forever doing that. We can therefore end up skewing our relationship with God, uh, skewing the way we engage with him. It shapes our our life under him. It shapes our life in the world, the way you conceive of God. It shapes everything. In 1952, so what is that, 70 years ago, 1952? um, I've heard about that in ancient history, 1952. There was a book that came out by a man called Phillips called your God is too small. It itself wasn't a very big book, but it was a book that explored these very questions. How big is your God? How do you understand God? How do you think of God? What's your conviction? That was his conviction back then that the, the community, the Christian world around him viewed God in such a way that it was far too small. He was far too small. Do you think it's any different today? Has our view of God enlarged and grown? I think there are great hints that it hasn't that we still live with a very small view of God, an inadequate view of God, uh, the way church people live their lives, the way church people engage with church, the way we uh, witness to the things of God, the sense of fear that we have or the sense of fear that's missing or the sense and experience of security, the way we pray. All of these things are evidences of your view of God and how you think about God, your ability to deal with problems in life. When disaster strikes, how do you engage at that point? When the death of someone you love happens, how do you engage? How do you think about God in the midst of that? These are all hints about our view of God and whether or not it's big enough, small enough, the view we have. It also shows itself in the way we engage with the Bible. Your view of God and whether he's big enough impacts the way you read the Bible. Now you might wonder why we're doing this conversation, why we're having this beginning to topic to, to deal with today. We're between series, we're finishing John's Gospel, we're coming into 2 Corinthians. But as we've been dealing with John's Gospel, one of the things that struck many people is the view of God that John presents. 
a view of God that seems to clash with the way many of us think about God. And it raises the very question for us, how big is our view of God? Is it big enough? You come and have a look with me at John chapter 6. Grab your Bibles. We're going to have a journey through the Scriptures in a short time. But come with me to John chapter 6. I want to show you a couple of verses to reflect with you on. John chapter 6 verse 44. It's a remarkable part of the Bible. Uh, John's Gospel, I hope you've enjoyed going through it. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? But John chapter 6 verse 44. No one can come to me, says Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to Jesus, no one can become a Christian is effectively what he can say. No one can come and be saved unless the Father draws him. Now what do you do with that verse? What do you make of that verse? Well, depending on how big your view of God is, that'll shape what you do with it. If you've got a smallish view of God, you'll tend to just pass on by and not really have noticed it. But if you've got a bigger view of God, you'll pause and if you've got any thoughtful reading you'll want to pause and reflect as well because it is easy to slide past and fit it in with a very simplistic understanding of God Uh, unless the father draws no one can come to the father no one can come to Christ no one can be saved unless the father draws him it's easy just to fit that into a very simplistic notion that yes of course God draws all humanity and leaves us then to make the decision those that have been being drawn out of those we make a decision no no that but that's not what the verse says is it It says, only the people who are drawn come. Which means, without God having drawn a person, they can't come. Which means, God is not drawing all people. Because it's those who are drawn who come. Well, what are you saying about God at this point? Which is not very different to what was said earlier. Have a look there at verse 35. Um, well, verse, uh, verse 37, verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me and ever comes to me, I will never drive away. All those the Father gives me will come. All those the Father gives will come. And only those that come are the ones that the Father has given to come, which means he has not given all to come. Wow. Hang on, this is not the way I've understood God. This is not the way I've thought about God. It suggests, doesn't it, that God is in control. He's in control of who comes and who doesn't come. Well, that's not the way I've understood it. Um, isn't it. Isn't it us who make the decision in these things? Hang on, how does the Bible say that God's in control of these things? Who does God think he is? This morning I want to expand our view of God. And John's Gospel has triggered it for us. John chapter 3 triggers it for us too. John chapter 3 has that most wonderful verse which we'll come back to towards the end, wait for it. But God so loves the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The love of God to give the Lord Jesus that whoever believes in him will be saved. But earlier in that same chapter, it's not possible to come and enjoy this experience of salvation unless you're born again, born again of the Spirit. But here's the thing, verse 8, just like the wind blows wherever it pleases, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. To be born of the Spirit is to be born of a Spirit who blows wherever He wills. To choose and call and draw those that the Spirit chooses to call and draw. and He's the one in control. How big is your view of God? 
Let's take a journey through the scriptures and see what the Bible actually has to say about all of this. Um, And it's obvious that we need to go to the scriptures if we're to understand who God is. But what I want to suggest is that it's not an easy process. As you come to the Bible to see what it says about God, it's not an easy process because we bring our own conception of who God is and what we want him to be like. And the Bible has to beat us around the head at times to get us to reshape and rethink and transform and change because we tend not to want him to be the way he actually is. Don't underestimate the challenge it is to hear what the Bible's... My plan is to run through some of the deepest and biggest truths about God today. My plan is to actually try and enlarge our sense of who God is for our good. Come with me to Genesis chapter 1. I won't get you to look up every verse we look at, but I want you to show you a couple. Genesis chapter 1, it's a passage, a part of the Bible lots of people argue about, don't they? Whether it's literal, what's literal, how long the days are and how many and so on and so forth. But what's clear is the reason for this part of the Bible, the reason for Genesis 1 and 2 is to tell us, to teach us that everything that exists, everything that exists, the stuff we see, smell, touch, feel, hear and so on, our universe and everything in it, all of it exists only because... God. And what I want you to notice here is uh, verse 3, God said, he spoke a word, let there be light and there was light. There's a beautiful little phrase you'll see it there a number of times, six times all the way through here. Look at verse 7, God made the vault, separated the water from above the waters and it was so. See that phrase, it was so, repeated numbers of times through this, just this paragraph, but six times through the chapter. You come down to verse 9, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear and it was so. Verse 11, let the land produce vegetarian seed bearing and trees according to their various kinds and it was so again and again God speaks and it was so speaks how does God speak literal matter of what do you make of the language of the Genesis 1 and 2 just to be alert to this how does God speak what does it mean to say God speaks God is spirit he has no vocal cords he has no throat he has no mouth he he's spirit there's nothing physical about God and there's no atmosphere within which words can vibrate and communicate how does God speak it's a picture isn't it? it's an image for us an extraordinary image that God can just think a thought God can just will a will and it's as if he just speaks a word and it was so by the simple power of a word Psalm 33 he speaks and it is so A word, nothing more than a word, and all that is comes into existence. It's mystery, of course. It's an astonishing, extraordinary thing that is beyond our comprehension, of course. If we're going to get a right sense of God, we need to engage with the reality of what God says. Now, our challenge, of course, is that we can't actually understand all that this is being saying. Can you imagine the power that God exhibits to speak a word, to express a thought, to will a will and to have existence come into being. In fact, originally I wanted to ask you, can you imagine that? And of course, what's the answer? No. There's nothing to compare it to. Creation from nothing. There's nothing to compare it to. We can make things, we can create things, but when we talk about creation, in a sense what we're doing is 
All we're doing is making stuff from something else. We're taking things that already exist and forming it into something else. From nothing. We can't make things from nothing, from non-existence to existence. We just fashion what is there. We can't even destroy stuff properly. We can dismantle things. You know, some have suggested the most powerful machine ever produced by humankind is the Large Hadron Collider. That's a that's 100 metres under in, the, in Switzerland, 27 kilometre circumference tunnel that's been built by hundreds of scientists collaborating from all around the world. It's designed entirely to accelerate a particle through magnets and so on to strike the nucleus of an atom, to break it apart. It's designed entirely for that purpose. And it produces, it produces heat... 7 trillion degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius. A lot. <laughs> don't get close to it. It uses terra kilowatts per hour of power. It's an astonishing machine. And it has the ability to break apart one atom. The true God just thinks the thought and any, every atom in the universe comes into existence. He is worthy to receive glory, honour and power for he created all things and by their, his will they were given existence and being. Revelation chapter 4. Now our challenge is that we live within this created space, this vast and substantial universe that we live in, but never for a moment imagine that it rivals God. Colossians chapter 1, all things were created in him, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, rulers, powers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He was before all things. In him all things hold together. Our mind's conception can't capture him as he is in himself. He is totally other than us. He is a God beyond our imagining. He is pure spirit, pure actuality. He doesn't get better, he doesn't get worse. He hasn't got potential that suddenly approves. He, he is who he is, which takes you to that extraordinary passage in Exodus chapter 3. Come and have a look at that with me. Exodus chapter 3. Back in the Old Testament, in the context of rescue out of slavery in Egypt, Moses has been wandering. He is brought to the burning bush. Do you remember Exodus chapter 3? And God commissions this man to be his spokesman, to go off and to lead the Israelites by his God's power out. And Moses says, verse 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. We looked at this through John's Gospel as well. The great I am. What does it mean to say I am who I am? What it means is that God is the great unmade one. He is self-sufficient. He is self-existing. I am who I am. I take no power or source or energy from anywhere else, anyone else. 
I am the one that exists in myself, as myself. Every other thing in existence gains its ability to exist from somewhere else, from someone else. We each depend on another to be who we are. Everything in the universe does except God, the great unmade one. He's only being, he's the only being who is totally self-dependent. He is who he is in himself. The great uncaused cause of all that is. He doesn't look to another, to anything else to define him, to give himself place and significance. He is who he is in himself. He is the one who gives all men life, breath and everything else. No one gives to him. He is no man's debtor. There is nothing you can do that could make God in your debt. The universe is not part of him. He is not more of God because the universe exists and he won't be less of God if the universe didn't exist. We therefore don't meet him in the sunset. Just saying. You don't meet God in the tree. You don't meet God in the, the still wind. Creation isn't God. That's pantheism. It's an Eastern religion. God is apart from creation. He isn't part of his creation. He is the self-existing one untouched by what happens to creation. Satan himself is a mere creature under the power of this God. He is not a force to rival God. Run further forward through the scriptures with me to this, to the fact that God's rule, power and rule, is over all creation. He is the one who controls all things. He is the creator. Um, nothing happens in his universe apart from him willing it to happen. Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. They're shocking words for many today. We have formed what we formed a new God. We've formed in our minds a conception of God, a smaller God. Writers and thinkers have actually given it a name in recent times. It's been called the God that we many believe in is called the therapeutic deist God. Therapeutic deism. It deism is the view of God as a God who is much smaller who is not only outside of creation, apart from it, he is rivalled by creation. Creation has an independent existence from this God, this deistic God, this view of God. The universe has a life of its own. This kind of deistic view of God is that the God creates the universe with its own laws of nature, with its own... It's like you create a clock and you create the mechanisms and the levers and the springs and you wind it up and put it on the mantel shelf and it winds on its own without that's the way many people conceive of creation and the universe around it the god who has made it has made it with the laws of nature and it now runs itself and he sits apart from it separate from it distant from it this god if he wants to make something happen within creation has to interfere with the way it works break the laws of nature 
But the Bible says God is infinitely more than that. It's theism is what the Bible presents to us. That God is the reason for everything at all times. He made the world and he sustains the world. He upholds the world, Hebrews chapter 1, with the word of his power. Acts chapter 17, in him we live, move and have our being. He sustains the world at every moment. Your life, my life is in his hands because your every breath comes from this God. It's given to you by him at every moment. Your breath, every breath, your heartbeat, every heartbeat, God is beating it. God is causing it to beat. Your loss of breath, when you lose breath, when you die without breath, it's because God has taken it from you. This is no absent God. It's such a shocking truth that let me give you the other places where this very thing is taught. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The creatures, Psalm 104, verse 27. All the creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High? That both calamities and good things come. He is God. The great I am. Who is not absent from his creation. Who is the absolute sovereign ruler over every aspect of his creation. Nothing happens in his creation but that he wills it. How else could it be otherwise? If he is who he is. The great I am. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I the Lord do all these things. Are these not radical words to us? Captivated by small ideas of God? These words were said by God in the context of disaster. God said these words to the Israelites in the midst of terrible disaster upon their nation, death, destruction. He said these words to humble them. I am God. There is no other. Be still and know that I am God, the great I am. All that happens, happens by my will, be broken before me, says God. But he does it too to lift them up. There's nothing that can happen to you, he says, that is out of my control, out of my hand, whether prosperity or disaster. I, the Lord, am in control. These things are shocking to us, but they need to shock us. When we see disasters, I don't know if you're around, if you were existing, lived when uh, the World Trade Center. Do you remember the World Trade Center and the great, terrible disaster of that? I remember where I was. Do you remember where you were when it happened? Um, 
The, the, the noise that came out of Christian communities trying to make sense of that. And it was very concerning how many rushed to explain that God was not in this. This was not, God, God, is, God wasn't, to, God can't be blamed and so on, this, is some, this was Satan. Or this is evil humans. No, those things are true. But God does not fear human disdain. He doesn't try and get himself off the hook. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. The Lord brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Our view of God is too small. The New Testament, Jesus, does he speak like this? Come and look at Luke chapter 13. This is the passage to look at. Come with me to Luke chapter 13. Look at verse 1. There were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. A great, a great religious war, dreadful. Jesus answered, do not think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Verse 1, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about these events, told Jesus about these terrible things that had occurred. But notice this, Jesus engages with them on the issue of were these people more sinful that these disasters happened to them or not? Why did these disasters happen to them? That's their question. And assumed in their question is that God brought the disaster. If the tower fell, the assumption was that God purposed it. Their question wasn't, was God in it or not? Their question was, why did God will it to happen? Was it because they're more sinful or the other people weren't so sinful? Why did they have it happen to them and not others? Not was God in it. They didn't have that question. And Jesus' answer wasn't, God wasn't in it. Jesus' answer was, repent. Because we all live under the hand of this sovereign God. Take great care of yourself before this God who rules all things. Who is this God? How do you conceive of this God? He is the absolute sovereign ruler over all he has made. He is the absolute sovereign over even the human will. Do not imagine that humans are a rival to the power of God, the great I am. He is the potter, we're the clay. Now what's this doing for you as you're listening? What what, what reactions are happening for you as you're listening? It's really worthwhile exploring what goes on in the human heart, in your own human heart. Now I know for some of you nothing's happening because you've been up all night with a child and that's okay, that's okay. People are in different places, I get it, yeah. But what is happening if you've been engaging? Do you find yourself going, 
No, no, no. Do you feel a sense of protest? Verse after verse that says God brings death and life, disaster, blindness, poverty. God brings all these. Do you find yourself saying, no, that's not the God I believe in? Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. With the powers of the heavens and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is the potter, we are the clay. He is God, who is spirit, the uncreated one, the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one, the eternal one. We are his creation, small, powerful, powerless, limited, utterly dependent on him for life, breath and everything else. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, he is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. If it happens, it only happens by the will of God. What are your reactions? You know, have you, seen, um, have you ever seen on, uh, on that thing called the interweb that's on our computers? Have you seen that thing where they do a YouTube of all the planets and how they, the scale. Have you seen the sun and the, the, the moon and the sun, the, then the planets around the solar system? And Let me do it for you. I found a coin, $2 coin, about 13 millimetres diameter is the Earth. Picture that for a moment. Let's make the Earth that big. It would mean the moon is about 30 centimetres away from it and a tiny dot. The sun, by scale, would be 100 centimetres uh, in size. A, a, what's that, a beach ball, a, a large beach ball. That's the sun in relation to our planet, our whole planet. And if you put it in the solar system, the sun would be over where the church office is up the top there, 120 metres away, a long way away. It took us three days to get to the moon. The sun is right over there. If you put the solar system in scale, then the furthest planet is about where Duffy's Oval is. Drive all the way down there, all the way out there, and you might get to the furthest planet. Alpha Centauri, the closest other sun to us, you would have to get all the way over to Perth, then to London, then across the Atlantic to the North, North American it's 25,000 kilometres away in scale. The largest sun we've discovered, they can work out, is this, is this is the human planet, our sun is this big. The largest sun in the universe that we can detect is twice as big as this building in scale. And here's the thing, that's just one galaxy. And God holds it all in his hand. The great I am. Who rules over all things. Uncontested. The great authority. We are merely specks on a speck before this God. What does this do for you? You know, it might shock you. Perhaps it's not how you've thought about God. Perhaps because the things of Christ are new to you, you've not actually explored these things, what a journey you have ahead of you. 
to wrestle with the scriptures on these truths. But perhaps this is shocking to you because you've not thought much about God since your childish days. You might have come through thinking about the things of Jesus as a child and never really developed your thinking about God beyond a kind of a seven-year-old's conception. Be glad for the shock if it's a shock because this is your God. Now it might raise massive questions for you. How can the Bible say it is God who brings disaster? Does that make him the author of sin? I thought he was a loving God. How does that fit with the one who rules over everything? I'm not going to give you the answers today. But whatever you do, don't settle for simple answers. Let the Bible put the foundational pieces in place because we need God to be who he is. We need God to be far bigger for our life. Let me tell you a couple of applications. We need God to be the God that he truly is, bigger than our many conceptions of God for our humility. For our humility. No one will stand before this God on the last day. No one will stand. No one will joke with this God on the last day. We're not equals or near equals. There's no power to rival God. The immensity of who God is, the power that he can speak and all becomes and will be removed at the voice of this God. We're not equals. Princes, presidents, prime ministers, lords, rulers, powers, authorities, Satan, principalities, kings, queens will be as nothing before this God. I am God, he says, and there is no other. I do as I please with the powers in heaven and the peoples of the earth because he is the great I am. For our humility, we need this. And I tell you though, for our security as well, we need this. We need this for our security because if this God is for you, if this God is for you, if this God sets his affection on you, you need never fear again. There's nothing you need to ever fear if this God is for you. And if you could pray to this God and know that this God heard you and would answer you, if you could pray to this God and know that he would answer you, what couldn't he do in your life? What oppressive thing could he remove? Anything. What what healing could he bring? Any healing. Could he bring you from the death to life? Of course. There's nothing beyond this God. This is the God that you could pray to and he could overturn secularism in a moment. He could undo every opposition to the Christian message in a moment. If somewhere were in, were in the hands of this God, you would have security unparalleled. But that's the question, isn't it? If, if you were in the hands of this God, if this God had set his affection on you, How do you know that he has? Well, it's the wonder of Jesus, isn't it? It's the wonder of Jesus. Do you know, familiarity breeds contempt. We talk about Jesus a lot. We hear about Jesus, we see the cross, we see these things. But if we would think more about the greatness and majesty and holiness and otherness of God more, then a moment's reflection on the fact that that God became man 
would be astonishing to us. That that God emptied himself and took on flesh. The humility of that God. And he did this because he so loved the world. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you cared for him. You made him a little lower of the angels, but you have elevated him. You have set your affection upon him. The wonder of Jesus is astonishing and extraordinary. God does all of this because he is also a God of love. But that he loves us is no small thing. That he loves us is a wonder beyond comprehension. The greater your sense of God and who he is, the greater your sense of his majesty, power and holiness, that he loves his world so much that he came amongst us to die amongst us is beyond comprehension. We who have turned our backs on him. How do you know therefore that he is for you? If you turn back and put your trust in Jesus as God's only hope of salvation, then you demonstrate he has put his love upon you. If you would turn from self-rule and independence from this God and recognise the truth that our life is dependent upon him at every moment and come back under his rule, seeing that it's only possible because Jesus paid your debt, if you would do that, you would demonstrate that God is drawing you. That God has put his affection on you. Because the only ones who come to the Son are the ones the Father draws. And so if you have come to the Son, it's only because the Father's drawn you. Which therefore means he's put his affection on you. He's put his love on you. And if that's what he has done, then nothing can separate you from the love of God. Death, life, angels, demons, nothing because of who this God is do you see when God is as large as he truly is it becomes obvious that there is nothing more important than being right with this God being in relationship with this God being reconciled to this God because there is nothing as horrific as being outside of this God and offside with this God because you will have no hope if you continue to turn your back on this God it is no contest you will be crushed by the holiness of this God in his justice sin against this God to turn your back against this God is an eternal crime worthy of eternal judgment Because it's a sin against the eternal majesty of the God of the universe, the God of everything. But if you have found Jesus, if you have come to Jesus, then you have found a love that is beyond comparison. A security and a hope and a confidence that you can have. A joy and a praise that he is worthy of. Because this God has set his affection on you in Jesus at such a price. Do you see? When your God's too small, everything unravels. But when your God is as big as the Bible presents him, you will live your life in wonder at what he has done for you, in confidence that you're secure in him, joy and gladness that you have a hope beyond the grave, 
ability to pray to him, sure that whatever you pray for, God has the power to do that and much more. Nothing can overtake you that will undermine or destroy you if this God is for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us appreciate the wonder and the glory and greatness of who you are. Give us a deep and profound sense of your, of your magnitude, that you are the great I Am, who spun stars into space, whose hand contains the universe as vast as it is, who is the spirit who is dependent on no one, who is life in himself. But help us appreciate too that you, that same God, has set your affection on those who turn to you. Please let us humble ourselves before you and entrust ourselves to you, aware that this is the most important thing to do in life. And we pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.